Grandstand Cricket. With a splendid innings for New Zealand, but they are all out for 372. Another test is done and dusted. Now it's time for some post-match parlay with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. The Final Word with ABC Grandstand. Hello and welcome to the Final Word podcast. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon with you again two days earlier than we would have liked, Jeff. This test match being wrapped up in just three days down in Hobart. I was brimming with excitement after Adelaide. Uh, The brimming is slightly less brimful uh, this time around. Sad, Sad stuff. Serious stuff, but I think we've got to look at the positives first, don't we? Well, we'll get there eventually, but we had a pretty good go at talking up the West Indies in the, in the days leading up to that test match. You wrote yep. a piece explaining how maybe we were writing them off prematurely, but mm-hmm. all the worst fears were realised. Well, I made a case for optimism, uh, and optimism is not always right. You know, you can be optimistic. Sometimes things don't work out. Plenty of optimists have met terrible ends, but <laughs> that's, that's what happened this week. There, there was a little bit of batting there. You know, there was a nice innings from Bravo and a, a good little innings from Craig Braithwaite, but that was about it. That's where it ran out. Yeah, it's, the, it's only two times in the last 11 test matches we've seen an Australian game go to five days now. But as you say, rightly, Jeff, let's crack on with the positives. And of course, you can't go any further than Adam Voges and Shaw Marsh. In their own right, both quite wonderful stories in the way they've came into the Australian side and prospered in recent times. They put on 449 for the second largest Australian partnership ever. Yes. Two runs behind Bradman and Ponsford with 451. I, I, was, I was comforted by Adam Voges after the game saying he was glad they didn't pass that 451 <laughs> milestone. It showed a great, a great degree of self-awareness. Humility. Which was, yeah, indeed. Yep. Well, they, when they came together, though, it was 3 for one two, one at the lunch break on day one. And I think the collective view around the box was that, if not on top, the Windies were at least at parity at that point. Not to say that afterwards when the two... West Australians came together, it was anything but a demolition job. They batted for pretty much a full day there, and they never looked like getting out until Marsh finally did hole out. You'd, you'd say the West Indies really were on top. Look, they had Warner and Smith out. They're the two key batsmen. They're the ones with the experience and the the runs behind them lately. So to have both of them go on in the first session, three for 120-odd, you'd say, okay, if they can get another couple quickly here, the inexperienced middle order, you know, the soft oh, underbelly. Yeah. And Curly Ambrose before the game yeah. saying that was the Australia's weakness. Absolutely. But, but it was. I mean, there's nothing incorrect about mm. saying that. But... Those two, it, it was, it, it was probably tough going for a little while, and then particularly after T, I mean the West Indies just dug themselves into a hole. They were bowling so slowly yeah. because you know Jason Holt is a young captain who doesn't feel confident enough to order his fast bowling troops around. Obviously, now we heard this story after the game that uh, his strike bowlers had refused to bowl from one end of the ground, mm. so he had to bowl them both from the other end, um, which ruined his bowling rotations. They were going so slowly that after T, he had to bring on spinners from both ends, including. Daryl Braithwaite bowling part-time offies just to try to get through some overs quickly so that they only ended the day one over down on the over rate and he didn't get suspended. And, and it didn't didn't help him either that Voges was batting like he brought his own bat and bowl. He was batting oh. superbly, especially uh, in his first 100, I would say. He that just middle looked, session, he was mm. he, he scored 90, 90-odd in the session, I think. Yeah, he nearly uh, made a century in a session, that's right. And he was going off a runner ball. He was about, he was about 10, 10 or 11 at lunch, I think, and then he uh, got to his 100. You know, in, in 90 odd balls after that. I'm very fond of the Voges story for lots of reasons, but the fact he's now on 922 career runs after 17 innings, people rant and rave rightly about Mike Hussey's first 10 test matches for Australia. Uh, for the same amount of innings, he's got more runs now than Hussey, two more runs at a, at a better average. Now, granted, 
Uh, he's he's made he averages four hundred against the West Indies, but you've got to make the runs. You've you've got to make the runs. It's been a yeah. But and, and the other point about Voges is really he he was no lock on playing the back half of that Ashes series after Edgbaston. He had yes. two quite weak dismissals in that in that performance, which he admit himself, and he was probably a fifty fifty chance of being dropped in favour of Sean Marsh, particularly had they stayed with Mitch Marsh at number six mm. and. Um, since then, it was a, a gritty innings in the second innings at Trent Bridge against all odds, really, when they were being steamrolled at the Oval the yep. week after that. He uh, made quite a graceful half-century and probably looked burnt for 100. But you go back again, he was going to be vice-captain in Bangladesh, which, of course, that tour was aborted. He made 50 runs in the next five knocks for Western Australia. He was again under pressure. I just like the idea that he keeps coming back and delivering when under a lot of pressure for Australia. And a stack of people said he should be dropped, he should be out of there. You know, he's not good enough. Oh, he's just a shield player, blah, blah. But... He's been so quality at that shield level for so many years that you have to think that that quality is going to come out. Um, and eventually it has started to do so. But his, I mean, his knock was incredibly special when you think about it. He was, well, he ended up on 269 not out. Mm. Now, if anyone who's made a bigger score than that, only one man has ever done it faster, and that's Verinda Saitwag, who did it faster about nine times because he was just <laughs> specialised in monster scores at incredible rates. But uh, I should say, of all the batsmen with a strike rate recorded, because some of the early ones don't because they didn't record the number of balls faced, but no one with a recorded strike rate has scored faster for a score that big. Well, it could have been a monster score. I went back through it today. Only 28 times in Test history there's been a triple hundred made, or 28 Test matches have included a triple century. That's 1.27% of Tests, to be precise. Now... I reckon he was burnt by a skipper. There was no reason why they couldn't have batted on. The way he was hitting the ball on, on the morning of day two, it would have taken him, what, tops half an hour to get a triple hundred. Why, 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 leave him, why leave him hanging? A few more overs and he would have been there. I mean, in fact, he probably could have gone for the 400 if they really wanted to rub it in and, and sneak Lara's record off him. Yeah. And, and that would have taken them to about, what, stumps on day two? And then they would have had three days to bowl the West Indies out twice. They still would have won in, in three days, yeah. more than likely, given that we finished halfway through the third day. Absolutely. And really, on 922 runs uh, so far in his career, he's perilously close to breaking through the 1,000-run barrier in his first year, well, not even full-completed year of Test cricket. Now, that's a that's a fine achievement. It would put him in... I can't imagine there'd be many players who've made 1,000 runs in their first year of Test cricket. Yeah, look, if, if he can notch 78 in the Boxing Day test, which you'd say is odds-on at this point. Certainly is. Chris Rogers spoke on the coverage quite a few times, actually, about the pressure on older players, something he's uh, you know, well-placed to talk about, given he came back into the setup at age 35, the same age that Adam Voges is now. And he said that the pressure on an older player is, one, you never feel totally comfortable, and mm -hmm. Voges admitted that after play, but two, you need to be one of the best players in the team. Yes. There's no utility in keeping someone who's, I guess, in the bottom third of players. You need to be prolific, and yep. that's the sort of role Voges is playing as a true leader in a fairly inexperienced side. Well, that's what they're relying on him for, and that's, you know, you, you feel like maybe if he'd been brought into the side a little bit earlier, he might have been able to do that during the Ashes. So I feel like he was disadvantaged in that he was still trying to to be... He was still trying to get comfortable, you know, and he looked nervous. He looked like, oh, holy... I'm playing for Australia, I'm in front of this massive crowd, you know, I'm here at Cardiff, they're all going off over the fence, you know. Jeff, but while we're talking about the West Australians, we haven't really dealt with our mate Sean Marsh yet. Now, it's incredible to think that a few weeks ago he was who he was and now he's a bloke who's made a, well, near enough to a test double hundred and we've got a serious selection quandary that he's forced as a consequence of that. This was inconceivable when he came in two test matches ago. That's right. And the temptation is to say, oh, easy runs, you know, uh, flat pitch, easy opponent, blah, blah. I don't really like that thing of talking down 
the runs. You can find a way to discredit almost any innings in Test cricket. You know, if you want, if you want to try hard enough, if you've got that sort of preemptive bias. So he did have to go out and make the runs. Other people didn't. He did. And to be honest, on that sort of uh, second morning, it was quite tough for a while. The hmm. West Indies were bowling some good deliveries. You know, but it seemed like there might be one in the over that was a good ball, and then the other five would just be creamed. <laughs> you know, they, they could smash everything else. So it was this weird thing where you never felt really like Voges and Marsh were in danger. Um, he, he looks serene when he's going well, and we've always known that. But our, our criticism is that that will then stop happening pretty quickly. But they've let themselves in for trouble. You know, uh, he's... He's the replacement player. Does that mean he has to go straight back out again? Well, it, it does, I think. My argument would be is they, they, they made this decision back before the Brisbane test that um, Kawaja and Burns were the future of the Australian side, considerably younger than Marsh, and they were going to fill two spots out of the top five. Um, now that Kawaja's back after hundreds in Perth and in Brisbane, of course, he, he's a lock to come back. And Darren Lehman alluded to as much. Now, it was Kawaja, interestingly, today. We're recording this podcast on the Monday, but it was said that he will have to pass a fitness test later this week in order to be eligible for Boxing Day. He's missing the first BBL fixture this week for the Sydney Thunder. And uh, so there's no guarantee he'll be back. But assuming Kawaja does come back, I think there will be a hard decision um, needing to be made and, and Marshall will be the one that gets the rough end of the pineapple there. Are they trying to get themselves a way out of it, though? I mean, why is he facing a fitness test a week before the test match. Well, are you, are you citing a conspiracy theory that they're trying to create, an ex- create a reason to pick Sean Marsh, Jeff? Surely not. Uh, no, just maybe <laughs> they want to avoid the, the sticky question, you know, and sort of hope that someone else, maybe one more failure for Joe Burns and then they, they'll punt him. But I don't think they should. Look, from the start of the season, they went, we've got to pick our, our new order, you know, um, the, not the band, the batting. But we've got Burns is the opener. Kawaja is the three. Smith, therefore, had to move to four. That's how it's supposed mm. to be. Now, you can't then go, okay, well, Burns has had a couple of tests. He's made 100, but we'll drop him and we'll bring Sean Marsh into open when he's made runs at five. All that kind of stuff. You're just going against everything that they've said publicly. The last thing I'll say about Sean Marsh, this is great stat off Twitter from Andrew Donison sent it into the, the podcast during the week. When he gets to 20, he averages 83. When he gets to 50, he averages 119. Now, we knew this about Sean Marsh. It's, 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 he seldom gets to 20 balls in Test cricket, but when he does, he flies. So yeah. this is, this is, he's reinforced everything we already knew about him. He's the, the skyscraper guy, the city skyline, you know, <laughs> big high rise, back to the slums. Um, it, it's always feast or famine with him, and I think it always will be. So I find it very funny when people say, ha-ha, look, he's making runs. And you're like, yeah, well, he does that. Sometimes he does, and then he doesn't for ages, and that's just how it is. So will we get back to the famine days? Mm. We'll see you in Melbourne. Skipping through to the fast bowlers, Josh Hazelwood put in another sterling performance leading the attack. Now, the really uh, interesting thing here is how he's performed since Mitchell Stark went down. Of course, Mitchell Stark wasn't able to bowl in the second innings, or most of the first innings for that matter, but particularly the the second innings at Adelaide. And he stepped up. It's irrefutable. The numbers reinforce that he's now a bowler who you can build an attack around. Whereas a couple of test matches ago, it wasn't entirely convincing whether he'd be remaining in the side with Peter Siddle in the wings and curiosity about whether he had the consistency that he showed earlier in the year in the West Indies. Yeah, look, I've made this argument about him for a while when I was querying whether you should have an attack of sort of Stark and Johnson bowling together, that sort of thing. Josh Hazelwood is, you know, he looks like a sort of snotty primary school kid, you know, like one of those annoying, <laughs> like nasty little kids who like sits up the back and pokes you with a pencil or something. Um, but he's a, he wants to be the senior man and he responds well to it. And I think he's the kind of bowler who could be, he can be a spearhead. Um, and he's, since he's had to be, suddenly he's been 
a revelation. Yeah, he really has. Jesse Hogan from The Age, who's been on our podcast before, he, he, he crunched some numbers. So in the test matches this summer before Mitchell Stark went down, so when he was bowling with him, Hazelwood bowled 90 overs and took five wickets at, a, with a, at an average of 65 and probably more instructively a, a strike rate of 108. That's a wicket every 108 balls. Since Stark's gone down and he's been the leader of the attack, he's taken 15 wickets at less than seven at a strike rate of 23 and just 1.8 runs and over. So, yeah, the, the numbers speak for themselves. And there was also some analytical work that he did uh, with the pitch map, that, that, um, that pitch map uh, um, that, that, is, that is operated on, on some of the websites. And what you're able to see from the, the pattern is that he's pitching the ball much more full. Now, of course, that's offset by the fact that one would bowl shorter in Perth, arguably. But nevertheless, he's obviously realised that he's got a job to do to, to attack the stumps and that's reaping dividends for him. Yeah, look, it is only three innings, so let's not lose our hats over mm. it. Um, but it was that second innings in New, in against New Zealand in Adelaide where he had to knock them over and did, um, and then he's come up twice against a very very weak West Indies batting lineup. Uh, you've got to say, so yeah, 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 true enough. But it, it is a different kind of role. I mean, the way I see yes. Hazelwood in the future is playing. The best comparison in, in modern days is he plays. It's easy to compare Glenn McGrath to Josh Hazelwood due to mm-hmm. where they come from and their frame and the way they deliver the ball. But allowing him to be the the, the attack leader while Stark can yes. play more the Brett Lee role, the strike bowler, the Jeff Thompson role. If you want to go back to the seventies, yep. someone who can come in and fling it and bowl as quick as he wants to try and uh, take wickets, knowing that there's the ballast of Josh Hazelwood there who's mm-hmm. leading the attack in a more conventional, orthodox sense. Sounds like a Pogue song. The ballast of Josh Hazelwood. Look, well, I, I think the thing is that look, Glenn McGrath's don't come along all the time. Um, there was never any question, though. Glenn McGrath didn't bowl that fast. He wasn't that threatening, but there was no question that he was the leader of the attack. Mm. Um, and, you know, a Brett Lee or someone like that was always a second or third bowler behind him. That's the kind of role that I think Hazelwood should play. I think everyone gets excited about Stark and says, oh, he's the new attack leader. He shouldn't be. He should be an effect bowler. He should learn how to bowl in test cricket because he still doesn't do it very well. Um, and I'll make that case until he starts. I'd love to see him start doing it. He's unstoppable in 50 over stuff, but I've rarely seen him bowl an impressive test match spell. You know, he's bowled a couple, but not a lot. He's not a strike. He's a strike bowler. He's not a spearhead bowler. Yeah, um, yeah I think there is a distinction being made there. Someone who's fulfilled both roles in his brief test career, well, brief in terms of test play, but he has been around for nearly four years now, is James Pattinson. Now, he got... Fairly well carded in the first innings. And again, Chris Rogers on our coverage through the test match reflected on how Pattinson's the sort of bowler who takes these things to heart. He would have found Friday night really hard going wicketless and having got hit around a bit by the fairly yep. inexperienced West, West Indian side. It was mostly Bravo, to be fair. So yes, it was. Most of, most of Pattinson's boundaries were off were, were struck by Bravo and they were mostly behind square. There were a lot of edges through gully and that sort of thing. Now, Bravo was slap happy with, with the bowling and he was playing well, but it wasn't like he was just bowling trash balls that got uh, put away through cover. But, but that's cricket though, isn't it? You can bowl beautifully and your numbers can look rubbish and, and as a consequence of that, you can feel terrible. And, and that's the nature of cricket being quite an individual team sport. And, you know, he would have reflected upon that Friday, but he, he took five for 27 on Saturday and he took the first four wickets and bowled with some serious venom. And after play, he said that he just uh, almost ignored the, the changes that have been made to his action over the last two years to sustain his career in favour of just bowling fast. Using his words, if I kept bowling the way I bowled on Friday, I wouldn't be playing much for Australia anyway. No, uh, but look, I find this worrying, Adam. I, I really do. Like, there's everybody likes that thing of going, oh, bugger it, you know, just cost caution to the wind. I'm just going to do things that, you know, the old-fashioned reckless way. But if he's been out of cricket for so long with so many injury problems, and then he said, I oh, stuffed my remodeled action, I'm just going to go back to my old action that I changed for a reason, 
and just hope it'll be all right. Now, he's got through an innings because he didn't have to bowl for very long. It took about 10 minutes to knock the West Indies over. Mm. But what happens when he starts doing that against South Africa and they bat for two days while you know, trying to see out a draw? You know, what happens at that point? Uh, what happens when he bowls himself into the ground, breaks down, gets another stress fracture, and he's out for another year? Yeah, it will be interesting to see how CA responds to those comments. But from a putting that, parking that to one side, he did show a, a fair degree of resilience in that second innings, and I yeah. think that's comforting. Again, he's the sort of bowler who you can see for a long period of time being a must-select. That's the attitude they've taken to... Pa- indeed, he's if he's got to be fit. He's yeah, got to be right. fit to be selected. That's, that's my concern, because he is so good... Um, when he's on, he is so good, but can he only be good when he's bowling in this way, which is quite self-destructive for his body? Another player who now is under an injury cloud of sorts is the captain, Steve Smith. Cricket Australia have said that he'll miss his BBL clash uh, this week and next in favour of getting ready for Boxing Day. And there was a story overnight saying that David Warner might be turned to for the limited overs games against India to be captain. <laughs> so what we've all talked about is uh, how how intriguing it would be to see Dave Warner captain Australia. We might be seeing it a fraction earlier than we anticipated. Oh, Warner's World. Warner's World. Remember the, the terrible old 90s theme park, Wobby's World? I'm glad you went there. I was going to go there. I'm glad you got there first. You used, used to get a run. You know, I'm sure we can talk about it now because I don't think they're still in operation. <laughs> <laughs> a late show favourite. Now that everything's, you know, tipped over and been sold off to whoever. It was like a chairlift and maybe like a little like playground merry-go-round or something. Um I think there was a slide prominently as there was, well. There was definitely wackiness was deeply involved <laughs> in the Wobbies World experience. Now, Warner's World could be a theme park, could be a fun park. Anything could happen there. Who knows? It'd be a surrealist, be kind of Mad Hatter's tea party of a, of a place. What we will know is the pre-game and post-game press conferences will be a dance site more interesting than what we've become accustomed to because he means what he says and he says what he means, David Warner. You can say what you want about him, but he's to the point. It'll be a cracker. Imagine, you know, if there's some kind of on-field boil over and... He's chatting away to the umpires. I mean, is the new responsible statesman David Warner going to come out? Or well, oh, I hope not. I hope he just. Uh, I hope he just rolls. What do you want to see happen? What's, what the, what's the best thing that could happen in a in a Warner? Imagine yeah, Warner captaincy. had been captain at Lords in that one day when there was the uh, the, the obstructing the ball decision yep. back in August. That's the sort of. I want to see some controversy. He has to oversee his skipper. Just some quirk of the game that comes up where his judgment's called into question. What's he going to do in the field? Because we had there, there is this sort of trend in cricket where the really attacking batsman can be a really conservative captain. MS Dhoni, that kind of. Uh, I, I just don't get the impression that would be the sort of way he would do it. I think he would be uh, equally as forceful um, tactically as he is with his mouth. But who's So it, it can be unexpected captain, say, like Peter Siddle, captaining Victoria, is the mm. one who had two short slips in yes, wearing he helmets. Mm. Two of them standing next to each other and got wickets there. Is, is that David Warner's go or would he just be very much like, you know, point, cover, mid-off, mid-on? I just want to take this moment to say that that reinforces why fast bowlers should be allowed to be captain of cricket. Absolutely. Sports. It's just nonsense. You have to be a top six batter to do it. But there is a serious point here. It's that Steve Smith is under an injury cloud. Now, David um, Darren Lehman said to, to the gathered press uh, after the match that he was running around like a 36-year-old, not a 26-year-old. So they've obviously got some concern with a niggle there. And, well, he's got at least two more test matches to get through in the World T20. And really, it's a never-ending summer for Steve Smith. Plays IPL, plays all three formats of the game uh, for Australia. Um, he'll obviously be going overseas to the West Indies for the one-day tour next year. Um, there's a South African one-day tour next year, then a long summer, then India. Uh, I wonder whether they'll consider um, resting him up for, for any of that. Well, you know what I really reckon? I wonder whether he'll play IPL. Yeah. I, I, he, he plays for one of the two franchises who won't be playing next year. And I wonder whether that'll be the... The sort of the, the, the catalyst for him saying, I might sit out this season. The end of it for him. Well, I've never got the impression that the Australian captain uh, is short of a quid. No, you know, I wouldn't the, have thought the, so. The pay packet attached to the role tends to be 
reasonably substantial, you know, probably more in a year than we, we would make in 40. Sure. Um, so why play IPL? What's the point? We'll see, we'll see. We're going to talk about the West Indies after just one quick break. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, ABC Grandstand. The Final Word podcast with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Jeff, we have to spend some serious time talking about the West Indies. The visitors were, as we said before, they were dreadful. And I think the time has come to really having a serious conversation about any intervention that can be had by international administrators because this is not sustainable. Yeah, as you raised, we're recording this podcast on the Monday. It's the 55th anniversary of the Tide Test of 1960, um, which you know would be remembered as many as usher, uh, remembered by many as ushering in the golden age of West Indies cricket that went for the next 35 or so years. But, but I also look at the, the commentary from Fazir Muhammad on our, on our team. He, he says that it's not just about what they did between 1980 and 1995 yeah. when they were number one in the world, all the way back to World War II. And Tim yep. Wigmore wrote a piece for The Guardian to that effect during the week. It's that yes. this is a long-term sustained period of success followed by an utter capitulation. And, That's right. And now we're in a situation where it used to be the, the eight test-playing nations sort of plus Zimbabwe and Bangladesh. I mean, yep. sure, they were test-playing nations, but they were viewed... You know, like they were kind of quasi-test-playing nations, I think, certainly the way they were, they were treated by opposing sides and thrashed you know, habitually. Well, the also West... the fact that they don't get played. I mean, Yeah, well, Australia... when they did get played. I mean, you know, when they came to Australia in 2003, yes. when Zimbabwe came here and they you know, made over 700 in Perth, and it was all a bit of a G-up, really, wasn't yeah. it? And, you know, Cat, the great man Simon Cadditch took six wickets. You know, he would say himself that was not, not test-quality opposition. Now, we're, we're getting to a similar place with the West Indies. And, yes. I mean, it's how you, how you come at that. We, we've got a responsibility as cricket people to talk about this a lot and really highlight it. That's right. There are a million things you could talk about about why this is happening. Um, and as Fuzzy has made the point, a lot of those reasons don't actually take into account that uh, they still applied back in the 50s and 60s when the West Indies were very good. You know, their first class cricket was terrible, their facilities were terrible, all that at the time. But let's not bother going into the whys because that's being done, has been done, and will be done over the next few weeks. The point is, what do you do now? You've had this recommendation from CARICOM, from the Caribbean yep. Umbrella Organisation, to disband the West Indies Cricket Board completely, um, to, to get rid of the current board and re uh, make a new administration, essentially. Well, I think that's at least the starting point. The provincial uh, representative model uh, seems to be one that's been dominated by self-interest by those that c- comprise it at the moment, and that seems the, the first natural step. But you can't do that alone in a vacuum. It can't just be like sack the board and let them sort it out. I think it is one of those situations where in the absence of the other test-playing nations and indeed the other affiliate and associate nations agreeing that this is a, a matter of urgency, then it'll just be, we'll be in the same place in a few years' time. That's just but the first starting point. Yeah, the, the point that you're at now is do you capitulate and say essentially test cricket is played between six to seven teams mm. um, and they just play each other on the merry-go-round. It does seem a bit like that already. We sort of, every four-year cycle, you'll have England out to Australia, you'll have Australia in England, you'll have India out to Australia, you'll have Australia in India. So those are four big series within those four years. Um, and then you throw in a South Africa series, a Pakistan series, a Sri Lanka series, a New Zealand series. That does take up most of the time. You sort of get the feeling that the boards would be quite happy to be playing some of the smaller teams less and just playing the big ones more. But fatigue sets in. You just don't care about the cricket. If if We had, what, three Ashes in 18 months, just about. Well, I mean, you said there that it it shuts out the smaller teams and the West Indies are being categorised as the smaller team. But as recently as 2000, 2001... They were a five-test yes. nation in Australia. They came out here as one of the two teams that got five tests, the other one being, of course, England. Mm-hmm. So every other year you'd have a five-test series. They were effectively, of the 
big three in a manner of yes. speaking. Maybe not on the field, but certainly as far as not off the field rather, but in terms of how they were conceived by people watching them. And in terms of their marketability, in terms exactly. of the excitement and the anticipation around the series. And I think that's the reason why there's this incredible sadness. People are really upset to see the West Indies be so trash. You know, it's not just beating an uncompetitive side. It, it's It's like... You know, meeting an old friend who's really let themselves go, and you're like, "What? Just, just lay off the pies? Like, what are you? Like, what are you doing? Like, how many? Like, how many beers are you drinking? What's going on?" Well, I mean, but yeah, I mean, it, it, there's this huge disconnect between what we knew the West Indies to be growing up, and it's always easy to hark back to the glory days. But yeah. again, in that piece in the Guardian, it talked about Alan Border having played against the West Indies on seven occasions and, and never beating them, and that's mm. why the '92-'93 series was like such a defining moment of his career. They just couldn't quite get it done. And we're not talking about, you know, something that was 50 years ago. That That's in our recent memory. It feels like recent memory anyway. It just seems to be such a sudden, I know it's 20 years, but it feels sudden. It feels like we've only got to this crisis point in the last well, couple of years. Fazir Mohammed was talking about it. He was saying basically after that 95 series um, against Australia, it was pretty much whitewashes almost immediately mm. thereafter, touring South Africa, touring England. Um, suddenly very, very suddenly within the space of one series, they went from uh, competitive to completely uncompetitive. So where are we at? We're, at? we're at a point where the rest of world cricket needs to be pulling together to say, what can we do? How can we help this? But it's hard when there are problems with so many other countries as well. You know, Pakistan can't play a game at home. Um, mm. Zimbabwe's a complete shambles. Bangladesh is improving slowly, and I think they're one of the optimistic stories in world cricket at the moment, um, Bangladesh. But... You know, they've had such a terrible run before that. Well, I think we could take something from the fact that the entire cricket world watches test series played here over the summer, especially the, uh, I guess, the marquee Boxing Day test and New Year's test. And they're going to be played by the West Indies. It's not the best commercial arrangement for Cricket Australia. I'm sure they would have rather be New Zealand, who have got a renewed sense of, sense of purpose in recent times. Indeed, they won a test match today against Sri Lanka. But... Now that it is going to be the West Indies, I think we need to view the positive here, which is the whole world is effectively watching. The whole cricket world is watching. And we need to utilise these next couple of weeks to reinforce to the cricket world that unless we want to see them disband, and that is a legitimate conversation now. This was a theoretical conversation a couple of years ago about maybe Trinidad and Tobago, Jamaica, Guyana and Barbados going out on their own. This isn't crazy talk now. This is like, you know, if they don't get their act together soon, and this has been said by West Indies administrators, we could be looking at having nine test-playing nations and the West Indies no longer being given that status anymore. And if those sides do go out on their own, they'll be playing maybe T20 competitions. They'll be in the the qualifiers, you know, with Oman and Nepal and those sorts of sides to try to make it into the extra slots at a T20 World Cup, that kind of thing. I mean, that's the level that they'll be at. In terms of the players who are getting around at the moment, I think... We've been very critical of their senior players, um, not least Marlon Samuels and Dinesh Ramdin, for different reasons. Samuels looks disinterested. Um, I don't know what your view on him is, Jeff, but to me, he seems like a guy who is uh, who, who's basically picking up a paycheck at this stage. I know he's laconic, but mm. laconic to the point of lazy isn't yes. acceptable for an international cricketer. I will pull you up there. Samuels looks uninterested. The umpire looks disinterested. <laughs> uh, however, yeah, Samuels looks like he doesn't give a toss. I mean, he just wasn't there. That's better. He was wandering out at, out at square legs, sort of looking at the sky, you know, picking stuff out from under his nails. When he came out to bat, he looked like he couldn't remember what he was there to do. He was he was a disgrace. Uh, the fact that, the, like I said earlier, that their senior bowlers were refusing to bowl sure. when requested by the captain, also disgraceful. I mean, they don't 
the players don't seem to care. They don't care about their team. They're there for themselves at the moment. At least some of them are. And there are a few who really believe in it and really want to be there. I think Craig Braithwaite's one. I think Jason Holder's one. But they're they're on their own, even within their own team. I feel sorry for young Regenda Chandrika, who has... Throw to the Wolves. He's, he's, he averages 25 at first class level. He's made yes. one century. That was a, a few weeks ago. He got yep. picked for test level before he'd ever made a, a, a first class 100. He, he's clearly not there. Now, he may be a kid of talent, but you don't throw a kid of talent into face what was Mitchell Stark, Josh Hazelwood, and Mitchell Johnson a few months ago in the Caribbean. And now in foreign conditions against an equally penetrative bowling attack. It's a, he, he's got very little chance of succeeding and making three ducks in four test innings is illustrative of that. Absolutely. He, he made his first-class average in the first innings, made 25, and you know that you didn't feel it was like... a success. It was deemed a, a deemed a good outcome. Yes, it's not right. No, uh, you you're throwing a guy in at at a level that's just impossible. A tour to Australia is one of the most difficult things you can do in cricket. I mean, it's one thing maybe picking him in home conditions, if you'd made a few runs there recently, but it's it's beyond comprehension that you can do that. It's a great way to ruin a player, you know, to sure. to let him have a terrible series, sort of ruin his confidence, and maybe he'll never play again. Well, look, at least we can be encouraged by Cricket Australia. James Sutherland, talking to the ABC before day two, said that there will be an emphasis from CA at a board level to try and help them through this very difficult period of time. And they, they met with them and they dined with them in Hobart. And hopefully that's the start of a, a productive conversation because I don't think I think the last thing anyone wants is the West Indies going out of test cricket. It's a tricky thing. Like You don't want to be the, you know, particularly to have a, a sort of, predominantly a Western, predominantly white colonial country bowling in there and saying, hey, we're going to tell you how to do things and we're going to tell you what to do. There's that sort of paternalistic element to it that, you know, you you can't, you've got to be very careful with how you go about these things. Maybe so, but the the, the type of administrative changes they're looking at at board level, that is getting rid of the regional representatives, is precisely what's occurred uh, at Australian level in the last five years in their own governance review. So they're quite Mm -hmm. well placed. New Zealand have gone through a very similar process as well. So... But we, I think we can take some, something from that and uh, let's hope that we see a, a more competitive contest on Boxing Day. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. ABC Grandstand. Well, Jeff, in closing, we've got a couple of weeks until the Boxing Day test. We've got the BBL back, though. The BBL starts this week and, of course, the women's BBL, the first time we've ever had that competition. Uh, it's going beautifully after a couple of weekends. That's right. A fantastic century from Grace Harris a couple of days ago. Smashed them to all parts off about 50 balls and some very close contests. So watching that with interest and, uh, of course, the men's big bash will get going as well. We have a two-day game for the West Indies down in Geelong this weekend. So I'm not sure whether that's the perfect lead-up for another test match. A bit disappointing that they're not playing any sort of what I would consider to be proper first-class cricket in the lead-up to what is a back-to-back test match. They've got enough time to play one. I'm, I'm surprised and disappointed that the, the scheduling hasn't been more effectively done to help them through this tough period. As a Cat supporter, I think anyone should be privileged to play in Geelong. They should feel very, very lucky to get to play a game there. But, yeah, perhaps they should be playing another game. Maybe a bit of practice wouldn't hurt. I don't mm. know. You know, just getting the feeling. Maybe a, maybe a club game. And that sounds a bit out there, but I, I think there'd be plenty of premier clubs in Victoria that would love to have a couple of the West Indies players there for a weekend as well. Well, but why not? I mean, what's the worst that can happen? At least they might get a few runs, get a few wickets, get some confidence up and, and come into the test match with a spring in their step. So that's the thing. What's gonna, what have we got to look forward yeah. to in the test match, Adam? Well, we've got Adam Voges. Yes. Adam Voges could make that 1,000-run mark yep. we talked about before. He could push his test average up into the Bradman levels. He's in, he's in the high 70s at the moment. Isn't oh, he? now we're talking. Another not out. 
He need a big. He need a big not out. Big it might not. require a two or three in front of it. But well, Sean Marsh pushed his average up by about ten runs before he got out uh, down at Hobart. So you know it can happen with a without too many tests in your career. It's easier to shift that number. Couldn't around. rule it out. I'm looking forward to watching Pat O'Bowl on Boxing Day again. Yes, the Victorian. Yeah, finally, finally a little a Victorian. Magic Nothing better happen. than seeing a Victorian bowl on Boxing Day, whether it's Big Merv or Tony Dodamade back in the Siddle day. Peter Siddle. We'll yes. have a we'll have a, a double Vic. Attack! Sorry, you can, you can tell that. you can tell we're two Victorians sitting in the studio. Sorry right now for, for everyone else. Parochialism. Look, we don't get much. We've got to take it where it comes. We do absolutely <laughs> to, to steal all our good players from other states. And who knows if the West Indies can find a way to forge their way back into this series? It could be like a movie script, oh. losing by an innings in Hobart before some scrappy weather-affected win in Melbourne and, and winning the series in winning the Frank World Trophy in, in Sydney. It's still possible. It'd be Invictus times the Mighty Ducks. It'd be, it'd be incredible. <laughs> Time's cool runnings. Look, oh, I mean, imagine, get it all in together. Uh, look, it happened in India in 2001. They lost the first match by sure. an innings and then went on to lose the series. Um, the difference is that West Indies don't have Raul Dravid, VVS Lakshman or Harbhajan Singh last time I checked. True enough. That's a screenplay we can co-write. But that's enough for us, I think. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon for the Final Word podcast. We'll be back with you after the Boxing Day Test Match.